Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That question led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, history of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, church history, uh, the Reformation, all things in between and beyond. And it was then that I encountered for the very first time Catholic theology, teaching of the Catholic Church, actual Catholic thinkers. And it was then that I realized what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith was based on large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. I didn't know what I thought I knew. And this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I am joined by Dr. Michael Foley, author of Drinking with the Saints. You know him, I'm sure, to talk about the Christian roots of Christmas traditions. It's a fantastic, fun, seasonal episode. I love these kinds of things, letting our, I don't know, our, our hair down, pouring our eggnog, and talking about the Christmas traditions we know and we love, and the real roots behind them. Not one of those gotcha episodes that make pagans tremble with fear, but a fun, faith-filled conversation about the holiday season. I think you'll love it. Settle back, uh, settle down, <laughs> settle down, <laughs> Don't settle down. Get excited. (laughs) Settle in and enjoy this fantastic conversation with Dr. Michael Foley. It's a great one, friends. These conversations are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com and our one-time sponsors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. If you love the work of this show and want to help us do what we do here week after week, check out the show notes for links to those places and how you can do that and help to keep this thing going and growing and spread this mission, the mission of Christ and his church. It's a good one, I think, friends. If you want to get behind it, head on over to those show notes and look at the places you can do that and help to support this show. And now, without any further ado, my conversation with Michael Foley on the Christian roots of Christmas traditions. It's a great one, friends. Please listen and please enjoy. Hey friends, thanks for being here. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for watching. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, uh, take a little, I don't know if you can, but uh, maybe pour a little eggnog for yourself. Put the fire down low. Uh, maybe uh, ga- uh, gather up the garland and the mistletoe, and I, I don't know what else you want to do. Uh, roast some, Get some chestnuts roasting maybe there. If you have an accessible open fire, make sure you're well within the limits of, of uh, the, the city bylaws or whatnot. Don't start anything on, on fire, please. If you're driving, don't do any of those things. Okay, Just, just listen. I, I say these things because I'm joined this week on the show uh, by Dr. Michael P. Foley, and we're talking about uh, the the Christian roots of uh, of Christmas traditions. It'll be a great time. Uh, Dr. Uh, Foley is a professor of patristics in the Great Texts program at Baylor University and professor of theology at the Aquinas Institute. He's written over 400 articles, 14 books, including, of course, the Drinking with the Saints series uh, books. And Drinking with St. Nick, and Drinking with Their Patron Saints, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity. That's fantastic. Some, some seriously fantastic books, Dr. Foley, I gotta say. Uh, Mike and his wife live in their adopted hometown of Waco, Texas, with their six children, 12 chickens, two dogs, sorry, two turtles, one dog, 12,000 bees, and a partridge in a pear tree, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken mistaken at this point. Uh, Dr. Foley, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show uh, and hello. Hello and thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you, I gotta say. Um, least of all because I I love a good guest from Baylor and a good guest from Waco. Mm. We've had, a, you know what, we've had quite a few of uh, of your kin, uh, your colleagues on this show and I always have to mm-hmm. ask when I, uh, at the outset, I've asked this, I asked this to your, of your colleague, uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith, when I had him on the show way back when, I said to him, I said, uh, Dr. Beckwith, kind of tell me, do you know Chip and Joanna? 
because that's a question that of course I, I need to know i love i love these guys i love fixed rubber i love the whole the the cottage industry they have going there uh, thinking of course no he doesn't know them it's actually my wife works with joanna on the on the farmer's market uh board of directors and they bought a house down the street from us actually re- recently i said really it is a small town after all so but do you know the do you know the 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 Gaineses, uh, Dr. the closest <laughs> connection that I have is that we had a neighbor on the street who was Joanna's yoga instructor. <laughs> and okay. she had to get up at like okay. 4.30 in the morning to direct Jojo in yoga <laughs> before all of the business hours, you know, came. Yeah, yeah. That's the closest connection that I've had, unfortunately. Uh, so at this point, Francis and the, Dr. Beckwith is in the lead for the closest He's connection. Really, yeah, yeah. so okay. many things. He's in the <laughs> That's wonderful. So we're talking about your your fantastic new book, Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe. Okay, now you've got some great books to follow up on, right? The, the Drinking with the Saints series, I gotta say, uh, Doctor Foley is legendary. I mean, everyone knows these books. Everybody, I can't imagine that. I can't tell you the number of priests I follow on Instagram who regularly all they all they post are are angry memes about about. Vatican II, or, or pictures of their drinks they're drinking from your... I like the drinks they're drinking. I, I, like, I like those pictures when they, when they post those. I could deal without the rest of the stuff there, but uh, uh, it's a, that's a fantastic stuff that you've done with that, so, so kudos for that stuff. It's, it's awesome. Uh, this falls up in a similar vein. I think you, you've got a great way of writing with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, with a bit of uh, drawing on, on history and, and, and the tradition and these kinds of things. Why? Where does the idea come from? What do you think? Were, were you? Cause I, I can see two angles here, right? This isn't one of those angry Christmas books, right? You have those angry Christmas mm-hmm. books that are like, here's here's why, all, you know, get the pagans running for the hills. Here's why we are retaking Christmas, right? That's not your that's not your approach. Uh, neither was it to reclaim <laughs> reclaim alcohol for the saints <laughs> with your other book. But what, what's what what was the light bulb for for this kind of thing? It's, it's so interesting. Well, you're absolutely right. It came from a place of joy. Like so many other children, I grew up just being in love with Christmas. And I recognized that it was the most special season of the year, especially with the symbolism. Like there's no other time in the American year that is so rife with symbols. But these symbols are not self-explanatory. Why do we kiss under the mistletoe? Why do we deck the halls with boughs of holly and not boxwood? (laughs) Why the Christmas tree? So I always had questions growing up as a kid. And then um, doing, you know, doctoral work in theology, I gained certain skills. And so when I had the time, I just wanted to dive deep and figure out the answer to these questions. And I'm really happy with what I found. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's it's very well done. A lot of fun, informative, and, and, and right deep. Uh, and I want to begin. I mean, there's a lot to go through here. We could go go in for hours. Uh, you just buy the book and read it. And that's probably the good, the best solution. But uh, let's begin with Christmas itself and the the dating of Christmas because this is this is again. And I don't want to be. I don't want to do this. This well, the pagans are wrong kind of thing over and over again, right? But this is one of those myths you often hear. It's trotted out every Christmas time, right? Ah, December 25th, you, you know, you, you Christians think you've, you've got the right data and you've stolen this from some kind of pagan thing or something. And they're all kind of different, different theories. So you begin, begin there. Why, why December 25th? Why is this a day that we celebrate Christmas? And by the way, I have some eggnog. So if you can see me on on camera sipping, I actually did pour some eggnog because why not? The kids are in bed. Dishes are done. We're sitting down for a chat. I'm going to have some eggnog while you regale us with Christmas tales. So why December 25th? Okay. So they're all there. One of the things I discovered is that there are myths about Christmas myths. And one of the myths <laughs> that I grew up with was this idea that, oh, we don't really know when Jesus was born. Um, there's this Roman emperor he instituted a feast of the unconquered sun god on December 25th, and the Christians just co-opted this feast. Now, it is true that Christians co-opt pagan customs, and we should have absolutely no shame in doing so. As Augustine says, you despoil the Egyptians, you take whatever is good, and you make it your own. So that wouldn't be a problem. 
But here's the thing. When the Roman emperor instituted that feast in, I think it was the late 4th century, for 100 years earlier, Christians in Rome believed that the birthday of Jesus was December 25th. So this wasn't a pagan co-opting. They really believed it. And they might be right. We don't know if they're right, but they might be right. It depends on how you read the Gospel of Luke. When does Zechariah offer sacrifice in the temple? If he offered it in late September, which is totally plausible, then his son, John the Baptist, would be born in late June, and Jesus, who is six months younger than John, would be born in late December. It's possible. The bottom line is, we just don't know. I thought it was interesting to, to learn that Christmas got off to a slow start, right? I, I didn't, this is one of those, and you make a point of this in the book too, that this isn't the high feast for the liturgical year. This isn't the high feast of the church. Uh, that That's Easter, of course, resurrection of Jesus. Christmas often plays this very important role, and, and often because of maybe the secular nature of Christmas these days. It crowds out Easter often on the calendar, e even for people who go to church. This often seems like a, like, a, like a bigger deal. But this wasn't always the case that it was even uh, half of what it was to date, right? This was a much smaller thing with, with a slower start. And it sounds like uh, maybe even some of the reformers didn't love Christmas or tried to repress this. I mean, that kind of surprises me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're right. Christmas did get off to a slow start. Easter had a head start, and rightly so. It is the Paschal mystery. It is the mystery of our redemption. But then the more you think about it, the more you realize, gosh, there would be no redemption without the incarnation. And so over time, there was this deepening appreciation for the birth of the God-man. Um, the first thing was the conception of the God-man. So the Feast of the Annunciation on March 25th was seen as a more important feast. But then, well, nine months later, what happens? Jesus is born. Yeah, that's pretty good, too. So over time, there was this deepening appreciation. One of the reasons why the Protestants did not like Christmas was, especially the Puritans, for the Puritans, you could not celebrate a feast that was not explicitly celebrated in the Bible. So even though Christmas is described in the Bible, it's not celebrated as a feast. And man, oh man, did they go after that <laughs> feast with a vengeance. I mean, the, the stories about the Puritan attack on Christmas, it makes you rub your eyes in disbelief <laughs> how much they hated Christmas. They were the Grinches par excellence. So how did that then shape kind of uh, uh, Christmas as it, ex as it extends, you know, in, in, in that time? Because I picture like Little House on the Prairie, Christmas in the log cabin, kind of like we read these stories to the kids at bedtime and they seem delightful. But this is what the Puritans were trying, trying to quash, it sounds like. You're absolutely right. So by the 19th century, America has warmed up to Christmas. That has to do with two things. American poets in New York City who have invented the myth of Santa Claus, and on the other side of the pond, Charles Dickens, who sentimentalizes Christmas in a good way uh, with Ebenezer Scrooge and so on. So the Puritans failed. Uh, you know, their Commonwealth was overthrown, the monarchy was restored in England, the Puritans in Boston were, thanks be to God, overwhelmed by the Irish. And so, uh, so eventually, uh, Christmas had a reboot in the 19th century in America. And has grown from there. <laughs> so Yeah, and it's kind of grown in perhaps unhealthy ways, but, you know, at least it got back on the map. <laughs> You you mentioned uh, the invention of Santa Claus by these by these poets, and that's such an interesting thing. There, there's so much wrapped up in there, and I know that even culturally, the idea of of Santa Claus crosses different cultural borders. The idea of of a gift giver at this kind of season comes from different places. We we have uh, prior to to informing myself about these traditions from your book, we had a children's book called Jingle Bells, which which covers the different traditions around the world. And you you're going through you know these things from Sweden and from Italy and Russia, and you're you're kind of scratching your head. You know, 
am I scaring the kids at bedtime or or are we is this like you know is this cultural awareness important because some of these some of these these gift giving characters at this time of the year uh, are a little bit creepy <laughs> Dr. Foley Oh, extremely creepy. And one of the big surprises in researching the book was the dark side of Christmas. Witches, goblins, ghosts, elves, which were scary creatures before they were tamed to make toys for Santa. They haunted the winter and Christmas season. So when Charles Dickens chooses Christmas Eve to be the night in which Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, he's not inventing that out of whole cloth. He is drawing from a very long and scary tradition, but I actually think it's a valuable tradition. And where does that come from? Where does the tradition of, of ghosts and, and ghouls haunting, uh, I almost said Halloween, <laughs> haunting yeah. Christmas, where, where does that come from? Well, you mentioned Halloween. So in pre-Christian Europe, Halloween was not... The one scary night. Halloween was the beginning of a long and extremely dark and scary season that would only end with the spring uh, season the following year. The dark nights of winter were a time of food scarcity, bitter cold, long nights, and the reign of evil. This was, for example, the night of the wild hunt where an evil witch would lead ghosts and damned demons across the night sky. And if you saw it, you could be taken up as well. This is where Johnny Cash's song (laughs) Ghost Riders in the Sky comes from. So there's like this really long mythology about the evil of winter. And when Christianity came, of course, it was a game changer. The light pierces these nights of dread. But you can only appreciate the light against the darkness that it vanquishes. And so even in Christian uh, cultures, the darkness was still there and it was still a force to be reckoned with. And so, I mean, you look at something like Christmas Carol, where these ghosts are coming back to visit Scrooge to have him change his, his life, right, is the idea. And this is a very uh, a Catholic story in a sense of these ghosts kind of, kind of coming from purgatory to at least his, his Morley, Marley, his, his colleague, coming to haunt him, to remind him uh, to change his life, right? That's a very kind of uh, last chance purgatorial kind of idea there. Um, is that the nature of these these scary tales as as the Christian story kind of takes over, that, that they're meant to remind people of that light and point people towards that light, or are they just to scare them out of their out of their their bad ways? Like what do those what do those stories do when, when the Christian message takes over those long winters? A little of both. So there are some theological lessons. There are some practical lessons about being nice and not naughty. Um <laughs> but a lot of them are rather practical. So, for example, there were fears about witches during Christmas, and uh, one of the superstitions was that on Christmas Eve, make absolutely certain all of your brooms are put away in a closet, because if you don't, a witch could fly down the chimney, grab the broom, and start flying around. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I I thought it was (laughs) eminently practical. But you can see kind of the point of this, tidy up. Kids, tidy up. Put the broom away or the witches will visit you tonight. Like, (laughs) there is a sort of thinly veiled moralism in all of this. (laughs) Have you tried that with with your own kids? Oh, well. Does it it work? (laughs) I don't know how how personal you want me to get tonight. But there is an old superstition that um, after the last day of Christmas, you have to put away all of the Christmas uh, ornaments. And whatever ornament you leave out, by that number, uh, uh, the same number of goblins will visit you that night. Oh, geez. So we do the 12 days of Christmas. The Epiphany came and went. It was January 7th. They still didn't put away all the Christmas ornaments. And so I actually made, forgive me, but I, I made a facsimile of a goblin. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I put it outside 
our uh, front bay window. And I said, kids, you know, the Christmas decorations <laughs> haven't been put away. And they like, what? I said, come out, come out to the front. And so just as they came out to the front, I flipped on the front, light, the, the front light and it just shone perfectly <laughs> in this makeshift goblin I had made. And my poor six-year-old daughter, Monica, climbed up me in fear. <laughs> she was absolutely terrified. I didn't mean to have that much of an effect. I felt really bad in hindsight. But anyway, she was in uh, speech therapy at the time. And you know, we're at Baylor University. It's a Baptist university. We're homeschooling Catholics. We're kind of weird. And so <laughs> to make conversation, the speech therapist says, hey, Monica, did you enjoy Christmas? And Monica said, no. And the speech therapist said, why not? And she replied, too many goblins. <laughs> oh, no. The speech therapist, of course, looked at her like, this confirms all the worst fears I have about Catholics. <laughs> yeah, it was not a good tool of evangelization. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's incredible. Hopefully there, was, there were no other kinds of therapy that she required later in life, Dr. Foley. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well... Time will tell. <laughs> That's incredible. You talked too about these mutant saints. Like I, I, I had, a, I thought maybe I, I have a, I have a pre-release copy of your book that I, that I received from, from for review, and I thought this must be a typo or something in this. And when I saw the first one, you know, a mutant Saint Lucy, and not okay. What does he mean by that? And you and I read on, and then the next is another mutant saint. Who are these? Who are, who are these? Is Professor Xavier recruiting some some saints to work on a superhero team or something around? What's what's going on? It's so bizarre. Folklore is so bizarre. So you have great saints like Nicholas and St. Martin and St. Lucy. But then, you know, God knows how they get mixed with these kind of pre-Christian fears and St. Nicholas becomes Belschnickel, which uh, is this, like, hairy St. Nicholas. But, like, and he's a baddie. Like, how on earth did that happen? And St. Lucy, who's this patron of light, becomes the head witch for the wild hunt that we were speaking of a moment ago. Like, now, needless to say, none of this was approved by the magisterium, but... You know, it's just like this bad cocktail. Uh, it, it just sort of marinated with these pre-Christian uh, traditions, and the result was literally monstrous. <laughs> and the and these saints, I mean, I don't know that. <laughs> Were this intent? These were intended to be uh, cautionary tales to scare the kids to picking up their clothes and, and these kind of things. Was this their? They were serving a quasi saintly purpose in their evil ways. I don't think they started out <laughs> with a saintly purpose, but then when they come about, they try to get incorporated back into the Christian narrative. So, like one of the ironies is that over time, one of the spooky sidekicks of Saint Nicholas is Belschnickel, but Belschnickel is a mutant Saint Nicholas. <laughs> Oh my goodness. But now he's in the service of St. Nicholas. It's just, well, frankly, it is as coherent as Marvel's multi-universe or whatever, whatever the heck they call it, right? <laughs> they pretend it's coherent, but it's not. And the same can be said of our own Christian traditions. Oh, so, so the mutants are on par with the real, with the quote-unquote real mutants of the Marvel, whatever. Yeah, multi, I'm with you, Dr. I don't, I don't, the multi-universe thing. Uh, sorry to the Marvel fans out there. I don't know. So, so Santa Claus himself is kind of a strange uh, mutation of different kinds of things. Um, th there's, th there's often this this pushback. Again, one of these kind of like put the the pushy the pushy Christian pushback is ah Saint Nicholas, uh, Santa Claus is ours. Let's let's reclaim Santa Claus for the Christian cause. Uh, try and rebaptize him and claim him back from the pagans who have stolen him, made him into into a gift giving kind of secular figure. Uh, the Coca Cola likes likes to use right, but there's kind of d different angles to take on the origin of Santa Claus that we know today. So where are some of the places that are, are drawn from that eventually become Santa Claus? What are these things? St. Nicholas is, I think, one of those things. But, but 
where do these things come in from? St. Nicholas is a great saint. He was a real human being, and he truly was the champion of the little guy. He was the champion of the poor, the champion of children, the champion of those wrongly accused by the government, and he rightly earned a place in people's heart as the, the, the patron of the little guy. So it only makes sense that over time, legends about him would grow. And they really got, got quite fantastic in the Middle Ages. But it was nothing in comparison to his transmogrification in New York City in the early 1800s by a series of American authors. Basically what they did was they took local Dutch customs about St. Nicholas. They took Norse elements about Thor and Woden from Norse mythology. They put them all three things in a blender and they flipped on the switch. <laughs> and that is our modern legend of Santa Claus. So it's really quite modern, this, this origin. Like St. Nicholas, he you know, was, was a real guy. Was, was, he was a bishop. Uh, is that part true? So there, there's a, a truth to the origin of the, the red outfit. Like that, that part is at least legit. The red outfit is not legit. It's from oh, Thor. Geez. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thor, after whom our day Thursday is named, was the god of fire, and he was associated with chimneys. So oh, his gosh. color was red. Nicholas died a confessor. He did not die a martyr, so his liturgical color would be white and not red. <laughs> So not even the red is not even the red is legit. That's bored. So how do you how do you put those things in a blender and end up with the Santa Claus that's so beloved today? I, how does that happen? Because I feel like lots of people think that this has these deep deep roots, but it doesn't seem that it seems pretty man made and recent. Indeed, there are a lot of changes. Saint Nicholas was a celibate Catholic bishop who lived in the sunny Mediterranean of Asia Minor. He didn't have Mrs. Claus as his <laughs> wife. He didn't live in the North Pole. He didn't wear red and white. Uh, he didn't have elves working for him. Like So there's so much that is, needless to say, off the charts. But the one common thing is the uh, giving of gifts to children and, and a spirit of generosity and goodwill towards all. And, and that's what I affirm. I, I know there are a lot of silly things about the modern Christmas, but the one common thread is that sense of goodwill. But the chimney thing, the chimney thing, because that doesn't make a lot of sense to anybody, why a chimney, that's from Thor? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Thor's thing. He would come down chimneys. But there is also a tradition about St. Nicholas that he saved three daughters of a poor man from prostitution by throwing bags of coins down their chimney to give them money for a dowry. <laughs> so there are these interesting, interesting connections that draw back and kind of draw you in the generosity, the gift giving. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. The reindeer? <laughs> so it was either Thor or Woden, after whom Wednesday is named. I can't remember which. I think it was Thor. So Thor, he had a chariot, and it was pulled by two celestial goats. <laughs> oh, and when the goats and their hooves trampled on the clouds, it made thunder. So um, Washington Irving and uh, Clement Clark Moore took that, and for whatever reason, they substituted reindeer. And at first it was two reindeer. And then Clement Clark Moore made it eight tiny reindeer. And then eventually in the 20th century, we added Rudolph. <laughs> and of course, his symbolism is... <laughs> well, that's a fascinating story in and of itself. Oh, um, are you serious? I am. It was a copy <laughs> editor. In 1939, uh, working for Montgomery Ward, he was actually a, a Jewish man. And he was told make a Christmas poem that will be marketable. And so he, quote, drew from his painfully shy childhood. 
to describe a reindeer neglected by others. And it became an instant hit. Gene Autry recorded it, became one of the best-selling Christmas songs of all time. There's good news and bad news about the uh, composer. Um, He made millions of dollars off this song. But in the 1940s, the tax rate of the federal government was 92% of your wealth. And so within seven years, he was bankrupt and had to go back as a copywriter at Montgomery Ward. But the good news is this, this Jewish man eventually converted to Catholicism and died a Catholic. That's, that's, I asked about Rudolph, and look, this is, this is one they get from you. That's a fantastic story. Amazing. I thought Canada had a bad tax rate, but I guess, wow, we had nothing compared to uh, Wow, that's astonishing, but amazing. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. I don't want to get political, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, but an amazing end of the story, an amazing Catholic conversion. That's that's fantastic. So is there, I mean, this is the interesting thing is, I guess if we're talking about uh, the secularization of Liz and, and the uh, transformation of can I can I say Thursday instead of Thursday? By the way, that'd be <laughs> a lot more fun, a lot more fun. Hey kids, it's Thursday today, Dad. Are you... That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I finally lost it, children. I, I'm thinking of the secularization of, of of Santa Claus, though, right? And is there is there value? Would you say for 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 Christians, for Catholics to, to embrace a secular Santa Claus, knowing that the roots are so confused. And I, I know folks who say, no, no way, no Santa Claus. Absolutely not. I don't mind bringing throw it down my chimney. I, 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 listeners to this show might be a little more tame, a little more calm after some a couple of cups of eggnog, maybe. Uh, is there value in embracing that tradition? I mean, there's generosity behind that. There's, there's a spirit of giving. There's, there's charity. What do you think? Well, um, I can only speak from my personal experience. Both my wife and I grew up believing in Santa Claus. And when we were told that Santa Claus didn't exist, it did not induce any existential crisis. But like many traditional Catholics, when we had children of our own, we thought, ooh, we should never lie to our children. Because if we do, it may undermine their confidence about you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we made it very clear that, uh, you know, Jesus Christ was the reason for the season. Santa Claus was a wonderful story. However, we didn't do a perfectly good job because we never fully explained to them the tooth fairy. (laughs) And so when they lost a tooth, we just said, put a tooth under the pillow and then they'd get a coin. So we only discovered a few years later, we have now several adult children. We only discovered a few years later that they grew up not believing in Santa Claus, but they did believe in the tooth fairy. <laughs> you know, you just oh. can't win as a parent in this age. That, that, that's all I'm saying. Oh, there are a lot of young Catholic families, a lot of convert uh, Catholic families listening to this show thinking, yeah, parenting is hard. It is hard. Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> you just don't be hard on yourself. Believe in Santa Claus. Believe in the Tooth Fairy. Don't believe in it. You know what? Whatever decision you make, they will still end up on the psychologist's yeah. couch yeah. Yeah. In, in, in their early 20s. And you're, there's no way you're going to be able to avoid that. So just just deal with it. I can't stand loose teeth. So I told our kids, if you lose a tooth, a demon comes and will... And will and, so I, and they haven't lost any teeth yet. Our oldest is seven. He's got them all still. Just he's in fear, holding them in, right? This, this whole time. No, I'm joking. <laughs> we did face that same dilemma, though, with Santa Claus, right? The, the problem, of course, being that the kids go to school. The other kids are, what? I don't want my kid to be the kid that tells that all those kids, Santa's real. My wife and I had the conversation about, well, we can't lie to him, but he also can't go and tell all the other kids that Santa Claus isn't real. It's going to cause a whole scandal in the, the school. I find the funny thing about I, I've, I'm a, I'm a school teacher. I taught sixth grade for a long time, and I that's my day job. And I I thought it was so funny that these kids who are who are ten, eleven, twelve that I see don't believe in Santa Claus, but Elf on the Shelf, Doctor Foley. This thing is real, and this thing moves around <laughs> at night. And I, I couldn't believe it. They're they'd make fun of each other for believing in Santa Claus. Oh, Santa Claus, but my Elf, my Elf did this last night. I was <laughs> like, wait a second. They don't believe in the unseen Santa Claus, but the Elf that moves at night 
that's that's real. That's the real deal. <laughs> I think creepier actually than the Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. It's always, it's always watching. So these other these other gift givers. I mean, you must have some favorites. I have some going through your book and and the book that I have with our kids. We've read before that. I, there are some weird ones in there, and you list a whole bunch here in this book of different gift givers from around the world. And 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 maybe I, I don't want to appear like we're too North American centric. I'm up here in Canada. You're down there in the States and we don't have the corner on Christmas traditions. And these weird ones might seem totally normal to somebody from, from that country. But what are your favorite of these strange gift giving? Uh, maybe give us a couple of your, of your, the most outlandish that you enjoyed uh, discovering when you, when you were writing this book. All right. So you mentioned the United States. I, I live in Texas, but I'm next door to Louisiana, which has a wonderful French-Canadian provenance because of the Cajuns. They've got this weird female <laughs> gift giver named Tantari, and it's derived from an old French tradition. But instead of pulling up on reindeer, she pulls up on two uh, red-eyed alligators. Ah, may we that uh, circle through the bayou and, and give gifts. I, I don't know how many <laughs> little Cajun children still believe in this, but it's, it's part of the lore. Um, but I think my favorite is from Italy, Bafana. Bafana is a corruption of the word epiphiana for epiphany. She is supposed to give gifts to children on the feast of the epiphany. And the story is, that she was a magnificent housekeeper and she was visited by the Magi who were searching for the infant Jesus. And they were super impressed with what a tidy house she had and her hospitality. And so they invited her to join them uh, to visit the Christ child. But because she was so obsessed with her housekeeping, she said, let me just tidy up and I'll catch up with you later. Well, she took too long tidying up the house. And then when she went out to find the Magi, she could not. And so she has spent the rest of time searching for the Christ child. <laughs> it's, a, that, it's such a fascinating, and I've read a number of those picture books to our kids. And we, uh, we have an Advent tradition my wife is working on this year. We're opening a, a, she wrapped a, a Christmas book or an Advent book. Uh, for every day of Advent, and we're unwrapping that book every night. It's really a lot. It's tons of work on her part. A lot of fun for us to unwrap, and fun for me. I, I don't know what books come when, and one of the, a, a few of the books that we've had over the years come from that tradition. And it's a sad, it's a sad, tragic story, right? It's, it's really, it's it's one of those like a better version of the Left Behind series, <laughs> maybe. Right? You've <laughs> you've you've missed out on this amazing event, and you get to spend your life kind of trying to figure out how you can get that back. It's it's a cautionary tale. It's, it's yeah, sadly, sadly poetic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so many of these myths are very thinly veiled morality tales. Yeah. So clearly, uh, you know, our, our wives, our mothers, uh, they worked so hard to make the Christmas season pleasant for the entire family, but it's easy for them to get obsessed and to be too much of the Martha and not enough of the Mary. And so the Bafana story is a reminder, don't lose the meaning of the season, right? It's great that you keep a tidy house. We all appreciate it, but there's something greater. <laughs> That's fantastic and terrifying. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's do, I, I want to do Mistletoe at some point because it's the title of your book. And, and I want to know why. Uh, I, I no one will kiss me under the mistletoe, Doctor Foley. But I don't know what's going on there. I, I maybe need to brush my teeth. Uh, let's do the Christmas tree first because this is again one of those, one of those. I think you mentioned before a legend of eleven, a, a myth of a myth, right, or a legend of a legend. There's so many of these interesting layer upon layer of things uh, when it comes to Christmas and the different traditions. Uh, so, uh, un unpack or unwrap or or, or I, I can't think of a, a fun. Metaphor or, or pun, pun here for you, okay? Uh, unwrap the Christmas tree for us a little bit, Dr. Foley, because it's a really interesting, I think, multi-layered uh, tradition. Contrary to popular belief, the Christmas tree is not a pagan yuletide holdover. It is a quintessentially Christian invention. It is the product 
of medieval theater. December 24th was the unofficial feast of Adam and Eve, who, according to tradition, felt really, really bad about the fall and damning all of humanity. And so they did the rest of their 900 years in penance. And so they did die in sanctifying grace. And so December 24th was this unofficial feast of Adam and Eve, and it set the stage for the reason for the birth of the God-man. The fall of the old Adam and the old Eve presaged the need for the new Adam and the new Eve. So in the Middle Ages, they staged plays that reenacted the Garden of Eden, and they had two trees on the stage. One is the Tree of Life, which was decorated for candy to symbolize eternal life. The other was the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil, which um, was decorated with apples or symbols of apples, red balls. When eventually these plays were discontinued, People loved them so much that they took the two trees, they combined them into one, and they moved them into their homes. And that is the origin of the Christmas tree. <laughs> that's that's so interesting. So I've heard stories of saints associated with these Christmas trees who, I don't know, popularized them. Or I've heard the idea of, like, the, the, the pagan myth. That's, that's, oh, here's a pun. That's rootless as far as we can, we, <laughs> is that safe to say? Because every year somebody will post this, uh, this, some kind of thing about the Christmas tree and how it's a, it's a pagan thing. Nothing to that? Nothing to it. Absolutely nothing. So the pagans did have Yule trees. They did. And they had evergreens in their homes to guard against the doldrums of winter. That's true. But the Christmas tree is an independent development. And an interesting proof of this is that in Germany, into the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, some German households would have two trees. One was the Yule tree, and the other was the Christmas tree, which would not be put up until December 24th. <laughs> that's, that's so fascinating. So you can see when that tradition kind of almost bridges in that case. That, that's awesome. So with the Christmas tree, often comes Christmas lights. And on our houses, we often put Christmas lights up. Now, we are very slow this year <laughs> to put our lights up. So our neighbors, are put, we're in a new house this year. We've just moved. And I think our neighbors think that we are, well, we have... We have enough statues that they know, they know, they know who we are. But I'm worried now they think there were some kind of uh, Catholics who hate Christmas lights. But Christmas lights are, are not a pagan tradition, are they? I, I can put those up. You absolutely can. Um, when to put them up is, you know, up to your discretion. Should have been last um, week, but. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I tend to put our Christmas lights up during the uh the, the O antiphons or the golden nights, which are the eight days prior to Christmas. But that's just a family thing. It's, it's whatever you want. There is a beautiful Irish tradition of putting Christmas candles um, in the windows. Um, and this is one of the origins of our Christmas lights. The Irish would do this on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And it was a secret signal to any priest during the, the days of the penal code, um, it was a signal that this was a safe place to celebrate mass. And when the British asked, why are you putting up these candles in your windowsill? They would say, oh, we were just providing a beacon for Jesus, Joseph, and Mary on their journey to the inn. And the British were like, oh, yeah, you Irish, you're so superstitious. <laughs> and so they dismissed it. But it was, it was an awesome code come here to celebrate Mass. I think that's fantastic. And I feel less guilty without putting the Christian sites up yet. I like that. I like the, your tradition sounds, we'll, just, we'll say we're doing that. I like that. <laughs> I like that. If the, if the kids catch wind and ask. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I, I love that. So to expand that, because that obviously didn't just uh, stay with Irish Catholics at the time. The idea of the Christmas lights have now spread far and wide. We had neighbors growing up who... Three bachelors lived on the street who were into computers uh, back when computers were like, ooh, computers. And they programmed their house to flash. They had like 30,000 light bulbs flashing their house to different set, you could, different uh, soundtracks. Right? You could drive down the street and tune your radio to a certain frequency and hear their house and watch the lights coordinate with the sounds. And it was a, this amazing thing until Bylock came in and closed them down a couple, a couple of years later, I think. 
But how did that tradition then spread to what we have today with Christmas lights uh, all over houses? And is that just a, is that an American like we want to beat this thing up kind of kind of thing? Well, you know, we talked about the Christmas tree. We talked about the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the red balls and the candy canes. But the third thing is the lights on the Christmas tree. The, the lights on the Christmas tree were also a German Christian thing, the Weinox pyramid. And uh, the, there was a pyramid of candles that represented basically the Jesse tree, the earthly genealogy of Jesus Christ. So lights, Christmas candles were always a very big part of the season. So it's not that surprising that once electric lights were invented, that we would take this technology and move it outside. <laughs> that's that's awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. So the, the same the same symbolism, but just outside. Yeah. Exactly. Right yeah. So yeah. obviously, this didn't happen before electricity, right? You're you're not going to keep a bunch of candles <laughs> outside in the wind. It's not going to last long. And even if you got your little hurricane lamps or whatever, <laughs> it's not going to work, right? But um, once electricity was invented, they took the symbolism of light and they externalized it. Someone tried, though, I'm sure, right? I'm sure someone tried to, to put the candles on. Ah, again! <laughs> They're all night they probably burned the village down. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay, so mistletoe. I have to ask because it's the title of your book. Why do we... This seems like... I, I can't even imagine where this came from. Kissing under mistletoe. I why? <laughs> because it's a magical plant. Yeah, okay. and, and that's what the Druids thought. So the Druids in England, Ireland, and some parts of northern France, they looked at this green thing that was verdant in the middle of winter, that had berries in the middle of winter, that never touched the soil, and yet was still growing. They looked at this thing as magical. And so the Druids would treat the mistletoe with special reverence. They would make peace under the mistletoe. And then when the Christians came into play, they took the mistletoe symbolism and added their signature greeting of peace, which is the holy kiss. And that is why we kiss under the mistletoe. That's awesome. Wow. I, I love that idea. I, I love the, the Christianization of, of mistletoe with the holy the holy kiss. That yeah. that makes sense. That's biblical. I think I think even it's the Protestants really can get can get behind that, Dr. Foley. But you know, what I've discovered uh, after this book came out is that um I've discovered that the mistletoe tradition only applies to those areas of the globe that have somehow been influenced by the Druids. So that means England, Ireland, America, Canada, some other parts of the Anglosphere. But um, I, I have a lot of Hispanic students here in Baylor, like mistletoe. What, what, what are you talking about? And uh, I have a Nigerian student this year, and I said, Miss Chukwuma, do you do you kiss under the mistletoe? And she looked at me like I had three heads. And I, and I said, so just to warn you, if if some boy kisses you under this weird-looking plant, it may not be sexual assault. It may be, <laughs> but it may not be. I just want to aware, make you aware of some cultural differences. Oh, that is important. That, that yeah, that's important to outline. That, that's kind of a weird. No, no druids in Nigeria, yeah. apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. So you, so you have a whole section of this book that I think is fantastic. Uh, that kind of gives a, a, a peek into the origins of all kinds of different Christmas uh, Christmas carols and, uh, and Advent hymns. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is what we're singing a lot right now during the Advent season. Can you talk a bit about the, the origin of, of uh, this song that's become so, so, so popular as an Advent hymn leading up to Christmas? Oh, that is the best of all the Advent <laughs> hymns. It's so magnificent. So... The Golden Nights are these wonderful eight days before Christmas, where during Vespers, the Liturgy of the Hours, there is an antiphon that praises the 
pre-incarnate word of God. So, and it goes through salvation history. So the first day you praise him as wisdom. The second day you praise him as Yahweh in the burning bush. The third day you praise him as the key of David or the root of Jesse. You like go through um, the, in a weird way, the appearances of the son of God in the old Testament before he became the son of God in the new Testament. And each of the verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel go back to this uh, beautiful tradition. That, that's, that's, that's amazing. And it, and it, 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 that's walking you through it kind of, I guess, hand in hand with, uh, with the uh, divine office, right? Liturgy of the hours toward, yeah. towards, towards Christmas. That, that's awesome. So we should be singing more of those verses. Uh, we should request more of the verses be sung than just the first verse, uh, maybe to get the full, the full experience. Quite so. Yeah. Although if you want to be strict and I'm not being strict, Maybe you shouldn't start until no. December 17th, yeah. which is when those O antiphons begin. But hey, I'm not going to be strict. <laughs> so you cover all kinds of different, different uh, Christmas hymns in here. I know no, uh, no coverage of Mary Did You Know anywhere in here. This didn't, didn't make the, uh, the cut for a popular Christmas song? <laughs> you know, I, I'm really sorry. There are so many great Christmas songs. <laughs> I, I did have to end it somewhere, but... Um, yeah, uh, I apologize. I'll, I'll work on that for the second edition. <laughs> Do you think Mary knew, though? <laughs> like, <seriously? laughs> Mary. Uh, yeah, Mary knew. Mary knew. That, that's awesome. Uh, there are all kinds of interesting Christmas foods that you talk about. Uh, Fruitcake, gingerbread. Uh, do you have a favorite Christmas candy canes? Uh, do you have a, I mentioned chestnuts earlier. They're, mine are roasting back in the, uh, the open fire back there. I should check on those in a second. Uh, do you have a favorite Christmas food or, or a couple of favorite Christmas foods that uh, when you're researching this book, you're like, oh, that's an amazing uh, you know, origin of this popular Christmas food that we have, that we enjoy? I enjoyed researching all the origins of these different <laughs> Christmas foods. But I'll be honest, my personal favorite, my mother's side of the family is French-Canadian. And so I enjoy, after midnight mass, toutières which is a, a pork pie. And I normally do not like meat pies, but there's something special about toutier with chow chow, uh, with sort of, which is sort of a green French Canadian ketchup that, I don't know, it just hits the spot after midnight mass. <laughs> I was in France once, uh, Dr. Foley, and uh, I, I have a, a bit of French. I grew up in Canada, so I took French all the way through high school and university. And I mixed up uh, the French name for, for tortilla, like a tart with uh, tartar one time and received some raw meat on my plate, very, very delicately presented with a raw egg on top, I should add, and had to eat it because I paid 60 bucks for it. So I had to, <laughs> had to finish it. That was a fun. That was fun. That was a fun, fun trip. <laughs> uh, w w things like uh, like a, the the fruit cake, the candy cane. Where, where do these things come from? Uh, is a fruit cake kind of like let's just put all the fruit into a <laughs> that we have going rotten in the in the fridge and soak this thing in the alcohol we can't drink because it's uh we're, we're heading into I don't know <laughs> where, where does this? I, I feel like uh, during Lent someone's making this cake. And then saving it for the next year, all the alcohol they need, they just use it all up and then put it in the, you know, put it in the, uh, the cold cellar and bring it out again. And, oh, here's, here's my Christmas gift this year. For, for Where does this, something like that come from? You know, the first reference to a fruitcake <laughs> is from the writings of King Solomon. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, those original fruitcakes could still be around. <laughs> Things circulated somewhere from family to family. Um, I think so. It, it's a mixed blessing. Let's just put it that way. I, I think the fruitcake became associated with the Christmas holidays because um, in the old days, what were your other options, right? The only way to preserve sweets was by putting it in something like a fruitcake. You, you didn't have modern access to sugar or preservatives, and so your only option for a sweet was a fruitcake. Now, of course, we have other options, and the fruitcake is often the butt of a joke. <laughs> and the candy cane, there are, there are, again, myths upon myths of the candy cane's origin. Is there any truth to this being 
the, the bishop's crook, the shepherd's the shepherd's crook, like the uh, an upside down J for Jesus. I've heard all these stories over the years, and often you'll see them posted on Facebook, and then somebody comes along with the article they post afterwards to, to debunk the first article, and then the, a third debunker come comes along. The, the candy cane is this, is this a Christian origin? It definitely originates in Christian uh, culture. Um, evangelicals often portray it as a symbol of Jesus because it's the shepherd's crook, it's the letter J, the red is his blood, the white is his innocence. The earliest reference we have to a peppermint candy of that sort was actually a German choir master. On Christmas Eve, he had this choir full of kids who were very restless, and so he concocted this candy for them to suck on so they could shut up during the parts that they weren't supposed to sing. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's a better origin story than, than I could have imagined. Yeah, that's great. So what you're saying is in the weeks leading up to Christmas, I should just be bringing candy canes to work. And uh, and that'd be a great way of... Uh... <laughs> Anytime one of your coworkers starts prattling, just stick a candy cane in their mouth. <laughs> That's fantastic. And often they'll be fine with that. I mean, like, that's, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that's the proper response that. Oh, I love that. That's, that's awesome. Um, there, there's lots to cover here. I, I'm wondering about the, the fact that for us, for, for, for the Catholics celebrating Christmas, it does not end on, on Christmas day, right? That's just traditionally, that's the, that's the, I shouldn't say the beginning of the end. That's the beginning of the Christmas season. And there's lots besides Christmas to keep on celebrating. So what does that season look like uh, traditionally uh, for the Catholic celebrating Christmas? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know what it's like where you are, but, you know, in here, even in central Texas, this year I saw Christmas trees and jack-o'-lanterns being sold yeah. at the same yeah. time in the store. The Christmas season, the marketing season, starts earlier and earlier each year. And one of the unfortunate effects of that is that by the time December 25th comes around, you're sick of Christmas. Like, you, you just, you've had it, right? So our ancestor di did have a better idea. They observed restraint during the season of Advent. It was still a time of joy, of great anticipation, but there was also restraint. And then when Christmas Day came, you pulled out all the stops and you celebrated, as you mentioned, the 12 days of Christmas as a period of unbroken merriment. And you did that between December 25th and January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany. That to me is a healthier model. Uh, Christmas should not end on Christmas. It's just the beginning of the merriment. <laughs> I had a guest on last week talking about Advent, and he said that his family, a, a Polish Catholic family, growing up with a large family, used to put the tree up, not turning, put lights out, but not turn anything on or do anything until until after Christmas Eve Mass. They'd come home, and he said the kids were so worked up, they were so at a frenzy, just waiting for the tree to go on, that they'd turn it on, they'd go nuts. He said, open the gifts and just eat the food of the entire house, be awake till three a.m. and then pass out till Christmas afternoon the next day. As a family, this is wild like the energy just pent up they just go crazy he said and he loved it as a kid growing up he said it was he couldn't sustain that as an adult with his own kids he said it was just it was impossible but he respected his parents for for the effort they put in they put into it i i think the awesome thing i mean I, i'm i'm a convert uh, we're a family of converts my wife and i to the the catholic faith and a lot of the listeners to this show are, are in that place uh, looking at the catholic church or th thinking about it or, or new converts and you're suddenly when you become catholic open up this whole new world of okay so here i'm at mass on on leading up to christmas and i, I see trees but they're they're dark and i see miss i see I, I often see garland set up and wreaths set up but but it's all kind of it's there, but suddenly you come on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning or the days following, and the church just looks incredible. The lights are all on. It's just this amazing Christmas feast for the eyes. The, the priests are in white vestments, and it's very much this celebration. And it keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And it really is this access to a whole new season to celebrate, right? If you can wait long enough not to get sick of it, like you said, it's, it's actually yeah. to a whole new, there's all kinds of traditions that come after the 25th, right? That, that a Catholic can really dig into and celebrate to keep the season 
properly speaking, going, right? You're absolutely right. And there are fun customs for almost every one of the 12 days of Christmas. A lot of them are topsy-turvy. They involve <laughs> an inversion of a social hierarchy on the Feast of the Holy Innocents, Parents and children switch places on Boxing Day. Uh, enlisted um, uh, servicemen and officers would change places. Um, there, there are all kinds of fun ways of, in a sense, celebrating the ultimate inversion in human history, which is God becoming a little baby. <laughs> That's that's so interesting and and fun and lots to engage in there. Uh, my my guest also cautioned the idea that don't take on too much, say for Advent as a as a family with young kids trying to do Advent right. What's your advice for for somebody maybe that 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 new convert that that person to become Catholic that for, with young kids looking to adopt some Catholic Christmas traditions? Uh, maybe in closing, what's what's your advice to? to a family like that, a person like that, trying to just kind of begin their Catholic journey with young kids, young family, but make it a meaningful, uh, you know, uh, faith-based season. What would your advice be to somebody like that as we think about celebrating Christmas? Very simple. Uh, (laughs) Go slowly and go organically. Um, We have six kids, my wife and I. Um, we, We were incorporating a lot of these traditions which were not in our own personal histories, but the beauty of it is when you start out with a young family, it's relatively easy to stay one step ahead of them. <laughs> um, and, but, but you don't have to do it all at once. You know, it's like our first Christmas, we got a very small nativity set. It was Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And then the next year, we got one king. And then after that, a second king and a third <laughs> king. And we, now we got some shepherds and some sheep. But you build gradually, and you do that with other Christmas customs as well. And and the other thing is, it's not about quantity, right? There are so many Christmas customs from around the world. If you incorporate every single one of them, you will be a flipping idiot. Um, The the point is just to incorporate the things that really bring about your authentic celebration of the birthday of the God-man. Yeah. That's, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to try the goblin thing this year and tell my tell the kids it was your idea, or tell the wife it was your idea if she, if she asks. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really do like Christmas goblins, but that's just kind of a personal thing. <laughs> I think that's fantastic, uh, Doctor Foley. This has been a real treat to talk to you. A, a good time. Uh, my egg dung is done now, so we're done talking. I got to go fill this up again. Uh, it, enjoyable. Uh, where do you want to point listeners towards? There's all kinds of awesome things, uh, this book, uh, amongst other things. Is there a one-stop shop where they can go to find these things, or where do you want to point them towards to find more information? Uh, my wife and I have a, a Drinking with the Saints podcast where we talk about a lot of these customs uh, every Thursday. Drinkingwiththesaints.com um, is uh, a website that you can uh, consult. We also have Drinking with the Saints on Facebook. Um, and we're going, we're leading a pilgrimage cruise, a riverboat cruise in April 2023 with Father Leo Padalinghug, who's the master chef for EWTN. Um, and that's going through the Douro region of Portugal and Spain. And we would love you and all your listeners to come join us. I will leave the kids and come. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds fantastic. Uh, Dr. Foley, this has been awesome. Thanks for uh, another good Waco guest in the books. You guys never disappoint. So thank you down there in Waco. Appreciate that. And uh, thanks for all the awesome work you're doing for the church. This is great stuff. Uh, Keep it coming. Please don't stop. It's a lot of fun. And (laughs) thanks for being here today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Well, I'm all out of eggnog just in time for the end of our episode. What a wonderful conversation with Dr. Michael P. Foley on, on the, those Christmas traditions. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I enjoyed having that. Hopefully you have a great holiday season if you're listening to this uh, as it comes out in the Christmas season approaching. Hopefully you enjoy a Merry Christmas with you and yours and your loved ones. Guys, I truly hope you have some time to rest and relax and reflect on the meaning and the purpose behind the reasons why we celebrate the birth of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
son of God, born on earth, man oh man, what a story, what fantastic, beautiful, resplendent traditions. The CordialCatholic.com is our website, CordialCatholic at gmail.com for your feedback. We're on TikTok, on Instagram, and on Twitter at CordialCatholic. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And please do leave a rating and review if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Those ratings and reviews help to push the podcast out to new people and spread the mission and mandate of this thing uh, further. If you want to support the show financially, if you feel led to do that, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Those notes are, you know, those links, I should say, are in the show notes for you to check out and have a look at ways you can support the show. And some of the benefits and perks that come with doing that are also available there, too. Thanks for listening, friends. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. A blessed Advent, if you listen to this uh, when it comes out. Looking forward to Christmas. And uh, thanks, friends. I'm praying for you. Please pray for me, too, and talk to you again next week, guys. God bless. Take care. And Merry Christmas. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.